0: Hello and welcome to a new semester of the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with E.J. Dion Jr., political writer for the Washington Post and William H. Bloomberg visiting professor at Harvard. He discussed the media's performance during the 2016 election, divides in American society, and how the media and progressives can move forward. The conversation was moderated by Nick O'Meally, director of the Shorenstein Center.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Nick O'Mealy. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center here at the Harvard Kennedy School. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, I'm delighted to have here as our guest E.J. Dionne, who many of you know uh, from, as he's a columnist for the Washington Post, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a professor at Georgetown University. And for at least this semester, a visiting uh, professor here at Harvard. most of that at least part. Thank yes, you. Yeah, yes. That's good. <laughs> uh, hopefully, I'm uh, oh, sorry. Hopefully, it'll be more than just a semester. But um, you're teaching in the Divinity School, right? Right, and social studies. And social studies. And we have uh, managed to corral him over here to have a conversation in a large part about his new book. One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate <laughs> and the Not Yet Deported, which he wrote with Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann. Uh, at this point, let's give E.J. a warm welcome. <laughs> Can I ask why you wrote this book? Um,
2: the, yeah, let me just say uh, one thing really quickly, which is it's both an honor and a pleasure to be here. I have always loved Uh, the Shorenstein Center, and Nico has done an extraordinary job uh, since he's taken over. I love it because of those words, media, politics, and public policy. And for, there are lots of journalism programs and lots of places that focus on particular problems of the media. And I think the focus of the Shorenstein Center, bringing together media politics and public policy, is exactly what we need to talk about. Uh, in the wake of the election, that the first job of journalism, of the media, is to tell the truth as best it can be found. But there's a reason for that in a democracy, which is its job is to serve democratic deliberation. Uh, And so I think the Shorenstein Center has been an important place for a long time. And it is, if I may channel Richard Nixon, now more than ever important. Uh, And so uh, thank you for that. I, I think the uh, th- you know, my co-authors. This book, by the way, I'm jumping the gun here. The book comes out on September 19th. Um, we decided that we would get the minor competition of Hillary Clinton's book out of the way uh, the week uh, before. Um, uh, the um, I'm, I'm going to study her promotion all week. Um, the um, I, obviously, the simple reason is that all three of us were. Um, very upset about Trump's election, about what it meant. All three of us, I think it's fair to say, as you'd see when you see the book, um, see a threat here that goes beyond, from the president, that goes beyond um, the normal uh, situation of a president you might disagree with. One of the, in the book, we talk about um, the um, uh, autocratic uh, tendencies that the president has. Uh, Danny Roderick, the other night, I thought put it really well at, a, at the uh, forum here, that when you see autocratic regimes take over, they go after judges, uh, they go after the media, and they try to render the opposition illegitimate. And, uh, um, you know, and we also, on the other hand, wrote this book because um, we think that Trump actually provides the country with an enormous opportunity. Um, and that opportunity comes from um, his kind of, uh, to use a word that was popular uh, a while back, unmasking a number of problems uh, in our politics. He has brought about an unprecedented political mobilization that I think goes quite deep uh, in the country. And I just ask you to compare the mobilization around Watergate was a great moment in American history, but it was almost entirely, the result was brought about almost entirely by key institutions, judges, the media, uh, the Congress, prosecutors. In this case, prosecutors are certainly important, judges could be important, but you have a kind of mobilization here that you haven't seen before. And then lastly, we thought it was really important to try to understand why uh, Trump happened. Um, And um, we, um, talk a lot about problems that the country had before Trump was elected that he exploited and that enabled um, his election. And um, we share the view of a lot of people that uh, you can't just oppose someone, although I do think there are moral values uh, that are being upheld in the opposition itself. Uh, and so we argue and uh, for, and I'll explain if anybody wants to hear what, what we mean by this, Um, We argue that the country needs a new economy, a new democracy, a new civil society, and a new patriotism, and we lay out um, a case for some of the economic reforms we need to end this really sharp division by region in the country um, over economics. We also insist that, a, uh, a progressive certainly should stand up for the whole working class. We've talked a lot about the white working class since the election, and we should worry about the white working class. We also should worry about the Latino and the African American and the Asian uh, working class. We talk about how we could bring those concerns together. Um, and so that's why we wrote the book. We were upset about what happened. We wanted to explain as best we could what we saw as uh, the reasons for Trump's election. And we wanted to sketch out what we hope. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's not an overly long book, but we try to lay out what we think needs to happen, both to repair the problems Trump uh, has created, but also to repair the problems that allowed him to win in the first place.
1: So in the book, you, you I know you, at the end, you call for a new democracy, a new media, a new economy. But, I also just wonder a little bit about how did we get here? And uh, you know, in your experience as a journalist, I wonder if we can just hone in on the media part. How did we arrive at this moment?
2: Yeah, we have a um, one of the longer chapters in the book is about the media because we think it was important to uh, uh, Trump's rise. And we point to a paradox. I don't think we're alone in pointing to this paradox that, Um, In many ways, the media, particularly television, enabled the rise of Trump, and now the free media stands (laughs) as one of the most important checks uh, on Trump, uh, on Trump's power, and in sort of um, reporting uh, candidly and honestly to Americans about the stakes in matters such as the Russia uh, investigation. Now, I think those two things are true at the same time. I always tell the story of being in our kitchen um, in late 1985, and we had a cable channel on, and it was showing a live Donald Trump speech. And said to myself, "I don't want to watch that," so I switched to another cable channel, and it was the same live Donald Trump speech. And I turned to my wife and uh, I said, "You know what do we have now? Trump state television." Um, and I think that particularly at the beginning of his campaign, um, the amount of utterly unmediated time uh, he got. Uh, compared to any other candidate was really uh, very disconcerting and something I think that the uh, networks, particularly cable but not exclusively cable, will have to answer for. Some of you may remember that in March of 2016, MediaQuant, the media tracking firm, reported that Trump had received $1.898 billion worth of free media. The Republican who was closest to him... Uh, was Ted Cruz? Trump got six times the coverage Ted Cruz got, and more—well, th- more than double what Hillary Clinton had gotten uh, to that point as a Democratic
1: front runner. There's something sort of troubling uh, about that. Um, but, what, but so, what should the media have done then? What's the alternative? Well, I think you
2: know there are a few simple rules. One. Uh, uh, either don't let candidates call into television shows, or allow all of them to call into television shows. You know, Donald Trump was the first guy who could do, if he wanted, Meet the Press in his pajamas, um, and it was very bizarre that Trump could just commandeer television time. Every other candidate had to go get made up, uh, and uh, you know, take a car and sit in a chair, um, and you know. So that's the kind of indulgence toward him. Secondly, I like unmediated presentation of candidates to a point. I think it's useful for voters to get to see somebody make his or her uh, case. But but you can't do that all exclusively on one side. I think the third thing, Trump complained about it, but it was a great asset of his, um, is that he complained that no one took his candidacy seriously, didn't think he was going to win. I certainly didn't think he was going to win. Um, I think that had the result that... Um, serious scrutiny of Trump started later uh, than scrutiny of other candidates. Eventually, um, there was a great deal of scrutiny of Trump, but it didn't happen uh, till much later, and I think um, that, uh, and it's a hard thing to think about because with a multiplicity of candidates, uh, journalistic institutions have some difficult choices to make in terms of investing time, and how do they do that, and how many people can they put on whom Um, Nonetheless, Trump became the first candidate in history who fended off one scandal with a new scandal. Um, Because eventually when the media kicked in, they found all kinds of stuff. It wasn't like they didn't—nobody could fault the media for ignoring Trump's problems. But all the coverage was concentrated and there were so many scandals. I think uh, Clinton's—one of Clinton's problems— um, is that it was the same three scandals, I'm leaving out Benghazi, over and over again over a period of years. It was a very concentrated uh, attack. Um, you know, the, uh, the speaking fees, the server, and then later the, um, uh, the, the WikiLeaks stuff. Um, and I, I think the, the Shorenstein Center, uh, 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 Tom Patterson's study, I think, showed something very interesting, which is if you looked at the campaign as a whole, um, if you looked at the campaign, rather, uh, in its final months, Trump got a little bit rougher treatment than Clinton. But if you look at the campaign as a whole, Clinton got rougher treatment than Trump. And I think that's because she got the going over all the way through, and Trump got it concentrated at the end. So those are um, a few of the problems. And I think the media have to—we talk a lot about false— uh, balance, and I think um, you know, false balance is a problem in the media. I think since the election, the media's already taken some important steps. Uh, you know, in the notion that there isn't false, there isn't any balance between truth and falsehood, and you shouldn't feel obligated uh, to any kind of balance between truth um, and falsehood. Um, but I also think, and Tom Tom's study also alluded to this. Um, you know, was there something qualitatively different between these two people that the media just couldn't quite bring itself to talk about? You know, Tom asked the question without answering it, did the media suggest that Hillary Clinton, with the normal problems of a candidate, the normal shortcomings of a candidate, get treated exactly the same as a candidate whom I think we can argue um, was somewhat Uh, uh, how to be, I mean, I don't particularly feel like being diplomatic, but I'll be diplomatic uh, quite beyond the normal, uh, who had some more than the normal problems, more than the normal share of scandals. Uh, And was there something inherently misleading? I'll I'll read um, something that was really tough. uh, I'll I'll close with this uh, from Brian Boitler of the New Republic. And he wrote this um, right before the polls had closed. So on the morning... Of the election, Brian wrote, the inability of political media to process and communicate asymmetry between the parties is a genuine crisis for the industry and our political culture. I believe both that if Trump were to become president, it would be a consequence of that crisis, and also that the media would do a much better job covering a Trump administration outside the context of a horse race than it did when he was running against the Democrat. But the way this campaign has been covered gives me incredible pause about the latter assumption. And even if it's correct, the double standard makes no sense. There is no way to justify systematically misinforming people about the stakes of an election and then clarifying the consequences after it's over. <laughs> now, uh, um, there's something to that. I, I can see, as a somebody who spent years in journalism, I can see some replies to Brian. But I think there's something deep in there that journalists will
0: have to think about.
1: And how does that, uh, how should they think about it heading into 2020? I mean, uh, there's not any evidence that that dynamic is necessarily going to change. That the horse, I- I- the horse race dynamic, I don't see that changing headed into 2020. Moreover, the volume of coverage. He's now the sitting president and the incumbent, and the volume of coverage will at least be comparable.
2: Right, but the volume. What, you know, what I meant at the. Be- what I was referring to at the beginning was not sheer volume, but uncritical, unmediated coverage. At the beginning, there really was very little. Everybody, this was sort of a wonderful thing to behold. It was. It was extraordinary for ratings. Was it Les Munby of uh, CBS said? Uh, he later said he was joking, but he said, "Well, Trump may not be good for the country, but he's good for CBS." And there is a kind of crisis in the media industry, and somebody who comes along who's great for ratings, which Trump is, got all this unmediated coverage. I think that's the issue. I think the coverage of Trump in the next campaign, if he gets that far, um, will necessarily be more critical right from the beginning. So I think we will sort of have that what, what, going for us. And, and the other thing is um, the um, I, and 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 here is where I think you can talk about some problems in the Clinton campaign, but also some problems in the media. Um, on the one hand, Trump had a series of easy to communicate um, ideas or notions uh, that he could just hit on over and over again: build a wall, uh, you know, stop uh, China from stealing our jobs, you know, stand up to. Terrorists, you know, stand up to Muslims. It, you know, it was a very bang, bang, bang uh, agenda. Um, Hillary had a very interesting economic agenda that got undercovered. I think it's fair for the Clinton people to say it's undercovered. But I also think the um, Democrats in the Clinton campaign uh, failed to make it as accessible um, um, and and as clear as she needed to in this campaign. And I still don't understand, although I'm told the focus group showed, they didn't say why there wasn't more advertising on in Michigan, Ohio, in um, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin on Trump stiffing his carpenters and uh, plumbers and the like. Um, you know, I, I think Trump talked, Trump's advertising was about 34% about economics, Hillary's was, I think, eight or 9% according to one, study, I think that's a lost opportunity, but I think the press um, undercovered what she actually had to say when she said something substantive, uh, and you know, I think Tom's study suggests that. Tom's study and also this great study, the Berkman Klein Center here and the MIT Center for uh, Civic Media, um, Trumpian issues dominated the coverage much more than democratic issues and i just think that's a fact and that's something the media should look at and ask you know and even if you ascribe a lot of that to the success and genius of donald trump i think it's still something the media has to think about
1: so let's talk about the trump voters for a minute you know in the book you talk a lot about the economic challenge the economic motivations the challenges the economy the need to build a new economy uh, but I also want to just ask about the role of race, which you talk a little bit about in the book too. We and, talk quite a lot about yeah, it. Right? Just, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but I guess in the in the uh, you know, I, I, my my takeaway from your book was that you thought it really was much more Trump's. Trump's ascendancy. What was powering Trump's candidacy was much more some of the economic issues, and and you race played a part, but it wasn't as strong a driver as the economic issues. And I just want to talk a little bit about that and about sometimes it's hard to disentangle the two.
2: Um, um, in fact, that that means I think we failed to communicate properly because we were very clear on. Um, how much the campaign, we have a chapter specifically called Race, Immigration, Cultural Economics, Um, and I think you might have gotten that impression because we argued against ignoring economics, Uh, and I'll get to that, but um, we went through every post-election study uh, we could get our hands on, and political scientists produced some pretty good stuff pretty quickly after the election, Um, And almost all of the studies rooted in public opinion data showed two things. First, and this I think is always underestimated when you analyze an election, first thing was party. Trump got an overwhelming majority of Republican votes. He wouldn't have won without Republican votes. And so there was a party vote here. Um, But second, culture, race, and economics um, were more important in all of the studies based on public opinion um, than economics, uh, than economics were. Um, The the, the evidence is pretty overwhelming. There's one study, for example, of Obama to Trump switches. Now, you would assume that if somebody voted for Obama, they can't be racially motivated. This study found that uh, many of the Obama to Trump voters were racially motivated. Uh, they voted for Obama for other reasons. I think it was partly the success of the Obama campaign in making Mitt Romney an unacceptable choice to white working-class uh, voters um, And uh, and I also think there was some stay-at-home uh, Republican votes as a result of that uh, in that election um, So we do not downplay the role of race or immigration and immigration was clearly, uh, it was for a minority of voters, but a very powerful motivator uh, for the Trump vote. But then we looked at studies based not on public opinion but on geography, and when you look at all the studies that based on geography make the point that the places Trump won tended not to be necessarily the poorest places in the country, uh, but the places under the most economic stress, the places with the highest A number of foreclosures, places where the uh, job base was in jobs more likely either to be outsourced or technologically uh, destroyed, and so what we argue is that it's um, you cannot you have to avoid two forms of denial. Uh, Denial one would be to underplay the role of race, immigration, and culture uh, in the election. Religion, by the way, for you know, his share of the conservative evangelical vote was higher than George W. Bush's. Um, You can't ignore the role of race, immigration, culture, economics, but uh, this all took place in an economic context. last point, because I think you said the essential thing, Nico, you can't easily um, pull these apart. Um, Voters are more likely to feel under pressure and more likely to react to react negatively to outgroups groups when they are under economic pressure, and also um, people um, uh, don't necessarily draw these baskets in their own heads that uh, pollsters or 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 journalists do. So just to quote two Trump voters, there was a man called Sam Altman, who's a Silicon Valley guy, uh, who traveled the country talking to Trump voters. He was trying to figure out what was going on, and there were. There are hundreds of quotes and really interesting sort of reasons why. Here are my two favorites that go straight to your point, or two of my favorites. He said, I'm so tired of hearing about white privilege. I'm white, but way less privileged than a black person from your world, meaning tech. Um, I have no hope my life will ever get any better. Then he talked to somebody else who said, I'd love to see one-tenth of the outrage about the state of our lives out here that you have for Muslims from another country. You have no idea what our lives are like. Now, both of those statements are tinged uh, with race race in one case, uh, Islam in the other, with a reaction there. But they're also both uh, tinged uh, with a strong class feeling that people are ignoring us. And I think that is a conundrum
1: that we've got to sort of unravel um, as a country. Do you think the media intensifies that, or what can the media do to diffuse that?
2: Um, I don't know what the media can do to diffuse that. There's one thing I think the media can do um, uh, that I try to do in my column, which is um, to have us stop talking about the working class as if it's only white. Uh, That, you know, I think you could argue now, it depends on how you do the numbers, that a majority of the working class is actually African-American or Latino, or at least a very substantial minority, is, and that many of the same problems confronting a white worker in Erie, Pennsylvania, Uh, were problems confronted um, in the inner city. These are problems created by deindustrialization. William J. Wilson, a great scholar at this school, uh, wrote a book 30 years ago called When Work Disappears. And he was writing about the cost of deindustrialization of people in the inner city. Um, What we're seeing now in some of the old mill towns around the country um, is the very same process happening um, to uh, Americans who are white. And so I would at least like to see more effort made uh, to talk about how problems that we tend to racialize um, are actually common uh, problems. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't particular problems that particular groups face. It certainly doesn't mean you know white workers do not have the same history of oppression that African Americans have. That's just a fact. Uh, On the other hand, I think there is more commonality, but ultimately I think that's the job of politics. I mean, I've been talking a lot about this problem of racial division in the country, and when I talk like I just did about the need to sort of bring together concerns for African Americans and Latinos and the white working class, people call it my Bobby Kennedy fantasy, um, you know, because remember famously in the primaries in 68, and there's real evidence for this, Kennedy managed to get a lot of votes from both the white working class and African Americans. And I think we desperately need a politics that brings those groups together. And I think that progressives, and I speak here as a progressive, not as a columnist in particular, um, I think progressives should look at what Trump is doing and know that he needs those racial divisions. And I think we need to heal those racial divisions.
1: All right, I'm going to ask a couple more questions and then open it up to the audience to so get your questions ready. Let me ask you, what surprised you most in the writing of this book? Um, well, probably the fact that three people on two coasts could
2: actually get it done <laughs> in a, a short period of time. Um, that the, um, It was actually, I, I always say our book could not have happened without modern technology. The ability of three people to work together and to, you know, I, I would make a change and could instantly share it and make sure my co-authors, especially if it was something that I changed in something they had written. Uh, it, was, it was a very interesting process uh, that way, and we could really respond. Um, we could respond very quickly. Um, probably, what, what, what surprised me is how many studies I were actually done of uh, on this question of race and, and culture versus uh, economics, and how much work had already been done. I wasn't surprised, but I was impressed with how much interesting post-election thinking, analysis, and reporting um, had been done um, had been done on, on what happened? Um, I guess the most surprising finding was in this um, Berkman um, MIT Berkman Center MIT study, um, which showed two things that were really striking. One is that um, there is a profound difference between how committed liberals and committed conservatives and right-wingers consume media, that um, uh, liberals tend to consume both mainstream and opinionated media, whereas on the right there was a much more exclusive consumption of um, information friendly to their side. Uh, But also, and this was something that I hope we have some, I, I commend it to you as a as a, something that would be interesting for Schornstein to do. Um, this study argues that the right-wing media was singularly successful at getting its tropes into the mainstream uh, coverage, uh, more successful than liberals were. Um, and I think there are obviously questions to ask about that of liberals and liberal strategists, but there are also questions to ask about that of the media. Um, and I think that study, um, you know, this massive study of, data consu- of uh, media consumption um, th- those two findings uh, sort of, th- those two findings uh, uh, took me uh, took me aback.
1: So what about, uh, my last question before we open it up to the audience, I want to go back to you, when, when I asked you about race, you were really, at the end of it, you were talking about we have to have a new kind of politics, in a sense. And in the, in the closing chapters of the book, you talk about the need to build a, a, a I guess I want to say like a new civil society, right? Well, not necessarily a new one, but uh, you know, we but, we, we say new,
2: yeah, we, yeah. We, we decided not to be shy about new. We thought we need a lot of new right now. Um, the two things about that one, my favorite personal experience of the campaign that's deeply self involved. Um, but why not after a campaign like this? Um, the um, I gave a talk, David Brooks and I were doing a panel at uh, Wash U, um, and um, uh, in the course of my some comments, I said that if I made a hat uh, for the campaign, it would say, make America empathetic again. Uh, and uh, this really nice man in the audience came to me and s- afterward and said, I really like that. I'm going to do something about that. And then uh, about uh, three or four weeks later, a hat arrives in the mail, and it is a perfect replica of the Trump hat, and it says, make America empathetic again. It's one of my favorite possessions of my Our son said, you know, dad, that's a great hat, but you can't wear it because it's so perfect that from a distance, everybody will think you're for Trump. <laughs> but um, And I do think that um, there the our ability to empathize with each other uh, across all our divides is, um, uh, is really attenuated, that we, we need a lot more work. There is uh, a sense of people not being able to put themselves in the shoes of others. Um, whether it is a white person in the shoes of an African-American worried about whether his kid on a, on a kid is going to get shot at night or a uh, well-off uh, person in Silicon Valley. Talking about those two guys I quoted whose, um, you know, whose companies went out of business and who had to trade a decent-paying job for something far less and so on. Um, So I I do think we need a new patriotism rooted in a new empathy, but we also talk a lot in the book about civil society, not as in civility, but as in all of those great institutions that are not part of government, uh, but can be nurtured by government, um, that um, help people organize their lives in their communities. And if you take three very different writers, if you take Um, Bob Putnam of this university and our kids, if you take J.D. Vance and if you take uh, Charles Murray, um, you're seeing in communities all over the country um, a degree of social dislocation, family breakdown, um, a decline in the vibrancy of civic, a variety of civic organizations. Many of these problems have sort of economic roots uh, a town that loses its economic wherewithal or a neighborhood that loses its economic wherewithal will have these problems, but these problems in turn um, aggravate the difficulties that are already there, um, and that's this is where I would love to see um, a broad conversation between left and right, um, you know, and I'm feeling pretty... Um, you know, I, I am I am not a let's all get along person these days. In the sense, I think these divisions we have are real, and some of them we just got to fight out. But I think that um, you know, conservatives have always pointed to the importance of family, um, and you know, conservatives and liberals alike have talked about the importance of these civic organizations. That's a very hard problem to solve. I want conservatives to acknowledge the economic roots of these problems, Uh, but I think those of us on the progressive side should sort of talk about how sort of the institutions of family and civil society are really essential building blocks to a uh, more just society, and we need a real conversation. Once in a while, that gets us out of the kind of um, uh, trenches that we find ourselves in. That's one area where I would really love a cross-ideological
1: conversation. All right, questions from the audience. Here we go, Dr. Holdren. Here is a
3: thank you. I'm John Holdren, uh, back on the faculty here uh, at Harvard after eight years as Obama's science advisor. Uh, You talked, E.J., about a number of uh, imbalances in coverage, but there's one dimension of one of them that, in my view, uh, falls more heavily on the media in terms of responsibility as opposed to on the successes or failures of the Trump. I won't guess, campaign. but I bet yeah. I can guess. Go well, ahead. This one in, in, in one of the studies, and I can't remember whether it was Tom Patterson or one of the others, it was pointed out that in terms of column inches of coverage in major newspapers and in terms of minutes of prime time on major news shows, that Hillary's server and the emails she deleted got more coverage than all of the policy differences and issues between the two candidates combined. Mm -hmm. And and that seems to me, if it's even remotely true, to be particularly telling, because you would expect some, I think you would expect some sense in the media of relative importance in terms of the policy issues uh, receiving more attention uh, compared to this one particular, as you put it, scandal.
2: I am basically 100% sympathetic to that critique. I think it was a problem. I think that <clears throat> we could say a whole series of things about how the Clinton campaign didn't handle this thing uh, very well. They could have handled it better, which I think she could have. Um, and you know that it was worth some coverage. And you know, I, I, you probably had this experience in government. I did talk to people in government who said, you know, uh, if I had used uh, two servers, I might have got into a lot of trouble and all of that um on the other hand, as far as we can tell, she never got hacked unlike some government servers exactly. did um, and um, you know I, I think you you remember that moment in one of the debates where uh, uh, Bernie Sanders got one of the loudest applause he got through the whole campaign when he said something like, let's stop stop talking about that damn server and the whole Democratic crowd went crazy and there was an imbalance and um you know every campaign has, uh, ends with a critique of the press failing to talk about the real uh, issues., uh, but I think in this campaign, the imbalance may have even been worse as you uh, as you suggest. Um, and um, again, I think the actors in the campaign have some responsibility, but i I did notice moments when um, you know, serious policy speeches got given and got minimal uh, coverage uh, and were, you know, and I think they're, um, might have been more effort in the past to cover some of those uh, some of those serious speeches <clears throat> you know Bill Clinton when he ran in 1991 gave three big policy speeches at Georgetown and the primaries that got very substantial uh, attention <clears throat> um, and so I do think it's a problem and I'm, I've always sort of wanted to figure out how do you make policy coverage exciting uh, to people how do you, um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily get you ratings, but I think this is where a place like Schoenstein so, needs
1: to uh, Actually, we, uh, we just released a study looking at the Sunday morning talk shows. Oh, I like Press Face yes, the this Nation. good news. And this week where we actually bought the Nielsen ratings and were able to show that uh, guests who really looked at—guests with real policy expertise who looked at substantial policy issues had higher Nielsen ratings than guests who were simply horse race or or process transactional.
2: Which is good, but you are already talking about a subset audience with the uh, Sunday shows in terms of the people watching them might be more likely to do that. Well, number one, it's great that you did this, and I want you to spread it around, uh, what, even if it, it keeps it, well, there were pundits two, off and puts experts like Dr. Holden on, but um, the uh, but I think that a lot of these networks are looking for you know audiences beyond the normal audience of the Sunday show, however large, substantial, but minority those are.
1: Is yeah. that fair? Well, uh, fair. Although I will point out that despite the fact that the guests of substance had higher Nielsen ratings, uh, there was a decline in the volume of guests of substance and. Um, and uh, interestingly, the, the study showed that the, those Sunday morning shows really set the agenda for the rest of the week with other news coverage, with just the issues that, that members of Congress issue press releases about. I mean, they have real agenda setting authority, even if their audiences are small, to drive the news cycle for the week.
2: Right. I think one of the other issues those shows confront is certain guests seem to get on over and over and over again. And it's interesting. That's a whole argument about. Uh, how, how do you bring in new voices
1: into the conversation? We'll take another question, Joe, and then we'll go back there. Yeah, I want Donna Brazil to retell the crawfish story and then
2: answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. Who is
0: so, so uh, EJ? Where? Oh, they, there you are. There was a story recently in the uh, I think New York Times Sunday Magazine about two women who had started working in companies as janitors, basically, cleaning women. And one who was working for Kodak 30 years ago, 48, rose, she started taking courses using her benefits and eventually rose to be running the information technology operation. The other is working for a contract cleaner at an equivalent company to Kodak today. And the best she can do in that organization is become sort of a manager of contract of of the cleaning people. And it seems to me that reflects a transformation of the economy of the United States that's quite profound and isn't written about. And that when you talk about people under stress, the media is still not talking about what is happening to the organization of work in the American society. The, con- the whole use of contract, the transformation of universities, more and more faculty, not so much here, are contract faculty. It's, it's profound, and yet it's not covered. And then it shows up in things like an election, and people are surprised, and people are stressed. We, we write in the book that
2: it should not have taken Trump's candidacy to call the nation's attention to this problem. It's been out there. And there are people who have been, um, you know, talking about this for a long time. I was part of a group with Larry Summers here where we put out a big report on these some of these problems a couple of years ago. There are, um, you know, a whole lot of senators who put together various programs for um, how do you protect gig employees and people on short-term contracts and, and what do you do about it. I I think we need a, a much more attention uh, to this. You know, the basic Issue is if you take globalization. To me, the story is that globalization is a problem for the least advantaged people in the richest countries. Uh, in other words, you can globalization does keep down prices for um, everybody in the country, but in terms of lost income, um, you know, the losses are among people with um, less, who have fewer formal skills or less education, and because of strong unions, because of manufacturing work, um, because of, uh, you know, in the absence of global competition, um, we had a, a, not uniformly, but a reasonably well-compensated working class, and when African Americans moved north and joined unions, they joined that, um, that working class. Um, and that, that is the transformation that you're talking about um, is a, is a huge problem, and we we talk a lot about it uh, in the book. Um, you know, shorthand. We've added a billion people or more to the global labor market. That is going to bid down wages for people in the category of jobs that those billion people are in, and we've got to deal with that. But
0: you've left out the transformation of ownership, which is huge.
2: Go on. Uh, just I
0: well. Ownership has moved essentially from the conventional notion of a household shareholder into vast pools of money that are seeking short very short-term returns. We have a including eight labor union pension funds. Yes. Okay? And and it's hugely important to the issue you're talking about because it's not as if there are organizations that have different views as how, how they might do something different. They are, in many instances, they're not permitted
2: to. I, as Richard Nixon said, I'm so glad you asked that question. I won't go on, but you can take a look <laughs> at the book. We very specifically talk about using work done by a number of uh, folks. Um, we talk about how um, uh, American companies, uh, the, you know, that financialization has led to more short-termism, uh, on the part of American companies, and there are some changes in corporate rules in perhaps in capital gains taxes, uh, where companies can um, start uh, again to think about stakeholders and not just shareholders. That's a, as you know, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. So, our economic program, we have a GI Bill, we have a, a charter for American working families, a GI Bill for American workers, and a contract for American social responsibility, and we talk about what we you might do to restructure some of the rules to have somewhat different corporate behavior, but we can talk some more afterwards.
1: Yep, right here, this woman right? in the middle.
2: I-
3: I'm Grace Palmer. I'm a first-year MPP here.
2: And is from my part of the world. So I'm from the for, I'm on the other side of the Massachusetts line from Rhode, from Rhode Island. A brilliant woman who used to work at the Brookings Institution, so thank you. <laughs>
3: uh, and I am thinking of the quotes that EJ shared earlier and also thinking of uh, research actually from Brookings from Carol Graham that looks at kind of comparative identities and hope um, based on how identity groups feel like they're uh, progressing or maybe gaining in um, well-being or not over time, uh, particularly looking at how a lot of whites are feeling a loss of hope because they've seen themselves gaining and comparative well-being for a long time, now feel that like they're not, whereas other identity groups maybe are not doing as well um, on an objective scale but are increasing in their well-being. Um, that's that's a long preamble, but I'm curious what the connection to media coverage might be there. What sort of feedback loop there is based on how the comparative well beings of um, white people and people of color have informed this election.
2: That's a great that is a great question, and I'm, I I don't know what role media is playing in fostering these feelings versus um, perceptions of what might actually be happening. Two two examples. Um, um, my friend Robert, Robbie Jones wrote a book called The End of White Christian America. Uh, and Robbie sort of argued that just on the basis of the numbers, um, white Christians will lose their majority. Christians won't lose their majority, but white Christians have lost uh, their majority. So there is this sense of displacement. Second study, uh, Andy Kohut found that in terms of opposition to immigration, the late great Andy Kohut, um, Found that there were two kinds of places where anti-immigrant feeling was high. One is places was were places with large-scale recent immigration. Okay, you can understand that a community is changing radically; people are uneasy with it. Um, the other were places where there are no immigrants at all, or practically no immigrants at all, where uh, the immigrant was a distant uh, figure. So, um, and then the um, you know those those two quotes. Um, suggested that, um, there, for a lot of people, um, the resentments and the anger is directed toward the group coming up. And I think this is a really old political story, that politics tends to move to the left when the bottom and the middle lie against the top and it tends to move to the right when the top and the middle lie against the bottom. And I think you're seeing some of that. The last thing since you mentioned, Carol Graham's study work, by the way, is great for those of you who haven't uh, looked at it. There's another great working study on this economics point. Um, Hillary Clinton carried like 450 counties. Um, Trump carried like 2,500 counties. Hillary Clinton's 400 and some counties represented 64% of GDP uh, in the United States. That's astonishing. and that. Tells you a lot. Now, Pippa Norris, the great scholar here, um, makes the interesting point that when you look at places, it's not clear that even if they are economically declining, it's economics uh, that drives that because economically declining places also tend to have older populations because young people uh, move out. They tend to have uh, folks, I refer to them as neighborhood people, they're folks who stick close to home uh, and so who might have much, somewhat more conservative and traditional views. But that 64% out of 400 counties just is very revealing. But
1: thank you. Pass the microphone down up yep, to the end of the aisle, right there, at the beard. Um, hi, my name is uh, Pat
4: Chapman. I'm a mid-career student at the Kennedy School. I um,
2: Can I ask just from what mid-career?
4: Navy.
2: <laughs> uh, oh, bless you. My sister was in the Navy. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. For, for, yeah, no, but th- I thank you for your service and Navy's, I love the Navy through my sister.
4: <laughs> um, so right now the mainstream media has a credibility issue. They uh, get facts wrong often with and often with huge implications. A few examples that come to mind are Michael Brown, hands up, don't shoot. Um, the UVA rape case, uh, Donald Trump selection every step of the way, primaries. All uh, exhaustive reporting on the Russian collusion narrative without uh, any substantial evidence to this point.
2: I would dispute the last, but we could argue about that.
4: Um, And these are not just minor errors; these are determined narratives, and despite uh, evidence. And so it's no wonder that the term fake news has kind of caught on in recent uh, jargon. So my question is, doesn't the mainstream media uh, have an obligation to report facts responsibly and also do soul searching and discuss openly when they they misled um, the nation? Uh, Because often we seem to be seeing more of the same uh, false narratives.
2: I think your question itself describes why we are at such a difficult pass uh, in politics, uh, you know, um, on the one hand, um, media aren't perfect and make errors, and they correct errors. Um, I hate mistakes, um, and I think everybody in journalism hates mistakes. I think errors should always be corrected prominently. People, you know, CNN recently fired three, you know, its whole uh, investigative team on one story. I think the notion that the media uh, is indifferent to error uh, when it makes them. Um, it, that's just not the case. But of course we make errors. I mean, Every human institution uh, makes errors. I think the issue is how we deal with it. I also think that uh, new technologies enable media to be more transparent about the sources of their information and I think that would add to the credibility of media. I, I love the fact, for example, that when I make an assertion in my column, I can link to a set of facts so that my reader can read it, or link to an entire speech so that my reader can see whether I took a quote out of context, stuff like that. Um, but I think you know we, you and I, particularly when you mentioned the Russia story, um, are clearly just looking at the same thing very differently. That's not you are asserting, as a matter of fact, that there is no basis. Uh, for the Russia collusion story. Um, And I could point you to a whole series of facts beginning with the various meetings that Trump uh, children uh, and others uh, in the Trump campaign had with Russian figures, the meetings that Jared Kushner had with Russian business folks. Um, Doesn't mean the case is proven. No one in the media has said that the collusion story is proven in any way. All the media has done is reported incrementally on what we have learned about dealings between the Trump campaign and um, various Russian uh, officials, business folks, and the like. Um, You, from your point of view, which you have a right to have, um, look at that and say, the media is trumping up, as it were, this Russian story. I look at that reporting and say, no, the media is reporting what we learn as we learn it about the, um, what might have happened here and what evidence there is of um, of, Trump, of, of possible uh, Trump collusion. What, uh, Ann Applebaum, a columnist for the Post, had a recent column where um, you know, said, we now have a lot of circumstantial evidence and the question is, will we get to evidence that, that creates a clear link or not? And we're not there, uh, we're not there yet. Um, but I think it's um you know I, I, and the and the notion that somehow Trump has been investigated really heavily and Hillary Clinton wasn't nobody can say that I mean Hill Clinton got the worst press uh you know and, and the, you know the scene study is very clear in terms of how uh equally negative it was at certain points and imbalanced it was um at other points so. Um, you know and, but media will make mistakes we should correct them and we should explain them and we should try to avoid them Is the best I
0: can do on that
1: but, but do, you think, do you think the media I guess implicit in that question is this notion that, that the media as an industry um, gets wrapped up in certain storylines or narratives and does that happen or does it just feel like that happens and what w- are there ways of correcting that
2: Well, the media certainly gets wrapped up in certain storylines, and the question in any given case is, um, is this a story worth getting wrapped up in? Um, You know, the Washington Post during Watergate did a lot more Watergate coverage for a while than other uh, newspapers did. And others said, oh, the Post is all wrapped up in this crazy Watergate (laughs) thing, there's nothing there, and then it turned out they were right. Um, there are other stories, some of this is in the eye of the beholder. We always like investigative stories about our political enemies, that's just a fact. Uh, and don't necessarily like them as much when they're about people we like. Uh, but I think the test is the story. Uh, my own view, and maybe it reflects a certain bias I have, but I don't. I would argue not, um, is that what we have learned in the Trump-Russia story that that story keeps producing enough information that the press is right to pursue it. Uh, partly because Mr. Mueller seems to think there's enough there to keep hiring prosecutors and to uh, keep uh, uh, looking into this. But yeah, there are. I worry about the cable news tendency uh, to pick one story and go with it uh, to the exclusion of four or five other stories. You really saw that in the. I think that started with O.J. Simpson way back uh, when. Uh, and I would like to see more diversity in the way stories uh, are reported. Actually, the old, much criticized old evening news shows don't do a terrible job of at least giving you 22 minutes of a variety of stuff. Sometimes people say it's too soft, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a range of stuff. So, yeah, we can get wrapped up, and the question is are, are when are we right and when are we wrong, and sometimes you don't know till the end.
1: Last question.
4: A um, uh, uh, fellow at the at the center. Uh, I love the book cover, especially that Trump is always looking at me. I can't I can't wait to read it. Oh, thank you. Um, I had I
2: love what our publisher did with the cover. Yeah, I, I also, claim no credit, but I love what they did.
4: So I wanted to ask you about um, uh, digital advertising. So Trump did uh, Trump campaign did spend much more money on digital than TV. Uh, he, in fact, he uh, if I recall correctly, he spent three uh, x uh, that amount of money, about ninety million. Um, On an average day, uh, he ran 40,000 campaigns, uh, 40,000 variations of ads, uh, and on the third debate, the last one, uh, they actually reached 150,000 ad variations um, on that day, so just in one simple day. I I wonder, do you you talk in the book about this, that Trump bit on digital while Hillary bit on TV?
2: No, we don't. Um, And I think that... Um, I think this is a really important thing to study because uh, I think it could end up coming up in the investigation of the Russians because they were question of targeting uh, you know, non-Trump campaign stuff um, but I think in the end they prove very shrewd in their targeting of the voters who were susceptible to voting for Trump in those critical Midwestern uh, states and I want to see Shornstein or somebody uh, maybe while you're here, you can launch this study, um, because I, uh, I'm sorry?
4: Thanks for giving me work. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: Well, the, the, uh, right, but you are more qualified than I to do the work, so um, the, um, uh, you really know what you're talking about here. Um, uh, I, you know, so I don't know the, I, I personally don't know the answer to this. I haven't seen any study yet that gets to the bottom of this, um, but they're clearly, was far more going on with the Trump digital campaign than I think we all reported on, which is yet another thing people can bash us in journalism for uh, uh, failing to notice. But they were clearly doing something very interesting in that sphere. And judging by the results in those particular places they targeted, it seemed to be successful. And like everything, we'll learn the wrong lesson from the last campaign and misapply it in the future.
1: <laughs> uh, thank you very much, E.J. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com